Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, 1960s swinging sex orgy man. (laughs) (laughs) That is what you are. It's a perfect description there. I missed my I missed my time. You miss, yeah, guess, exactly. So. You missed your your time period. But we're uh, in the thick of that time period here in this season of awesome movie year because we're talking about the films of 1967. And in this episode, we are talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, the very swinging blow up from director Michelangelo Antonioni, starring David Hemmings and Vanessa Redgrave and. Uh, and- photographs and photographs lots yeah. of lots of photographs and lots of uh swinging 60s outfits and music and some some sexy sex sex stuff yep that too that they did in the 60s and they continue to i hear maybe not the same way anymore <laughs> maybe not it's different ways but also art Lots of, uh, <laughs> you know, this is an artistically ambitious film. I mean, it won the, it won the Palme d'Or. That's a the prestigious and serious prize. And it was also nominated for two Oscars for Best Director for Michelangelo Antonioni and for Best Original Screenplay for the screenplay that he co-wrote for this film. Um, it was actually released in uh, December 1966 in the U.S. And despite this uh, very European art house film uh it was released here in the u.s before in europe so played the can in 1967 and then released in various places in 67 so uh ahead of the curve here in the u.s in a small way yeah so the screenplay was co-written by tonino guerra and i think some of the english dialogue was through edward bond who i think was like a you know, playwright kind of art facilitator of sorts. Yeah, he's credited with the English language dialogue. And I wonder how much English they spoke, either of those, Antonioni or his co-writer. So Bond may be responsible for a lot of what we actually hear. And the whole thing is based on a short story, uh, Las Babas del Diablo by Julio Cortazar, 1959. Did you know that? I mean, I saw that on Wikipedia. I didn't read the short story, but uh, I have to wonder, given how kind of abstract this movie is at a lot of times um, in a way that is only possible in a movie, in a visual medium, what the story does in terms of plot. Maybe it's a picture book. (laughs) I don't think so. I didn't look it up. I don't know if it's easily available to read uh, and especially in English, but um, yeah. The, The other thing I wanted to say, Josh, is like you said, you know, it was kind of released ahead of the time and ahead of as we talked about the kind of mpa ratings so it had like a kind of like a indie style release like a real independent distributor release and uh it made a lot of money for especially a uh, foreign art film at the time it did it made 20 million worldwide on its 1.8 million dollar budget so that is quite a lot although that may include re-releases i'm not sure sometimes these numbers are hard to verify but even if so, like that's a lot of money to bring in, as you say, for this very artsy movie, whether you like this movie or not. I mean, it's certainly not a mainstream kind of thing. Right. And I mean, how do you even advertise this in the mid 60s? When is it like, is it an unrated release? You know, like we said, the MPAA wasn't there yet. I mean, it's a very uh, 
unique situation, I think. Right. The NBAA wasn't there. There were no ratings yet. Um, those uh, came into being in 1968. And so this was the last gasp of the production code. And this was released without production code approval. And again, by this point, it was not as difficult to do that. There was a period of time, you know, 40s, 50s, where no movie would really get any kind of release, even though independent films did get released that way. But anything mainstream that's going to reach a big audience would have to have approval. But at this point, it's kind of weakening. And even though I think it's, is it MGM? It was a big studio that financed this film. And then they released it through like a subsidiary to get that indie release and to get around the production code. But I think that, you know, in a way, movies like that, you market it as like, oh, this is a movie that they didn't want you to see, that kind of thing, you know, and you use that naughtiness or the illicitness of it. It's funny. I was talking to someone who saw this when he he said he was like 12 years old, right? (laughs) And, was it Dave? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Did your parents show it to you? Yeah, Dave. So that, it would have been like five at the time. But oh, yeah. he saw it when he was 12. And, he, you know, it's the mid 60s, right? Yeah. Clearly, no internet. That's a fact for you guys. Out there. <laughs> mm-hmm, and sure. he's like, you know, that's why I had to go see it. There was all this sexiness and there's nudity. And it's like, as right. a 12 year old boy, this was a thing I had to do. So, yeah. What else are you going to do? You know, I don't want to answer that. Yeah. <laughs> So, but that's so this person like knew about it though and went to the theater on his own initiative at 12 to see this movie because it was sexy. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So there that answers it. That's that's how it, you know, reached its audience. But it's funny because it's weird, you know, we grew up in the 80s, the time of teen sexploitation comedy movies, right? And like he's like, it was sexy, and I had to go see it. And I'm like, that would have been like Porky's for us or something yeah. like that. that might, this might be the first time in history someone's compared blow up to Porky's or something along those lines. Slightly more artistically ambitious, this film, than Porky's. And uh, well-regarded by critics. And and very, uh, it's interesting reading reviews from this time because a lot of these critics get so much more space to write than, you know, you look at reviews now and they're all short and quick and everything, but... A lot of intellectual analysis going on with this movie, not surprisingly. Sound, you sound very like whimsical, like this is something you miss. Like, yeah. You want more space for your writing. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, on the internet, you can, of course, I mean, there's no physical limits. You know, there's, there's limits in terms of what uh, various websites want to publish. But um, it, it, I do get a chance to go long. But it's just interesting to read these long uh, articles that were like the first reviews of this movie were just really long um, and other movies too. So, but my point being that critics really dug into this. So it's, it's, it's a little tough to kind of condense these into basic opinions, but I did my best. Um, starting with Bosley Crowther in the New York times, who is known for being kind of stuffy, but he uh, was a big fan of this. He said, this is a fascinating picture, which has something real to say about the matter of personal involvement and emotional commitment in a jazzed up, media hooked in world so cluttered with synthetic stimulations that natural feelings are overwhelmed. It is vintage Antonioni fortified with a Hitchcock twist and it is a, and it is beautifully photographed in color. One may have reservations toward this picture. It is redundant and long. There are the usual Antonioni passages of seemingly endless wanderings. The interest may be too much concentrated in the one character and the symbolistic conclusions may be too romantic for the mood. It is still a stunning picture. 
beautifully built up with glowing images and color compositions that get us into the feelings of our man and into the characteristics of the mod world in which he dwells. There is even exciting vitality in the routine business of his using photographs, prints and blowups and superimpositions to bring a thought, a preconception alive. And I think his minor detour into criticizing this film is probably along the lines of our reaction our major, to it. Uh, our major points of it. I don't, what is, what twist is he talking about? I don't, I watched the movie and I was never like, ooh, there's a twist. I mean, I think he's using twist in the sense of that, like, it's a twist on what you would expect from Antonioni. Oh. That, you know, he hasn't made movies that involve this element sure. of suspense or mystery before. Right. Um, it's like usually two people at a cafe talking about uh, how unhappy they are in their relationship or something along those lines. Exactly. It's the the seemingly endless wanderings that he mentions. Yeah. I mean, look, he he makes beautiful looking movies. So True. True, Let's he does. And this this movie does look beautiful. I mean, it captures that aesthetic of the mod London world. Right. It did make you feel like you wanted to be a part of it other than, you know, the, the murder and stuff. Right. But the murder is so secondary that if I mean, you want to live in a swing in society, baby. You got to accept a few murders here and there. We live in a swing in society. Um, <laughs> so Andrew Saris in the Village Voice loved this. He said, Michelangelo Antonioni's blow up is the movie of the year. And I use the term movie advisedly for an evening's entertainment that left me feeling no pain or Antonioni ennui. I can't. He's, he's, he's combined those words uh, whatsoever. It is possible that this year's contributions from Ford, Dreyer, Hitchcock, Chabrol and Godard may cut deeper and live longer than Antonioni's mod masterpiece. But no other movie this year has done as much to preserve my faith in the future of the medium. If you have not yet seen Blow Up, see it immediately before you hear or read anything more about it. I speak from personal experience when I say it is better to let the movie catch you completely unawares. One of its greatest virtues is surprise, and the last thing you want to know is the plot and theme in advance. Purely on a plot level, Blow Up provides more thrills, chills, and fancy frissons than any other movie this year. Man, we just, uh, what? Yeah, I, I <laughs> figured you were going to have movie? that response to that. Yeah, it's wild, dude. Yeah, so it's crazy. This, is, uh, this is not how I felt about the movie, Josh. Yeah, I didn't either. And I feel like even if you think this movie is brilliant, the idea, I think one of the problems is going into this movie, expecting it to do what he says there to thrill you and chill you with the plot, because the plot is almost like Antonioni is reluctant to even include it. Yeah, I mean, and I didn't know much about it going in, right? And I, so I, in a way, I listened to Mr. Saris. Uh, by, by the way, the rest of the review literally goes through the entire plot up to the final shot of the movie. <laughs> I know that's a big thing that you like in uh, older reviews where they just spoil the whole movie for you and yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. But uh, imagine the amount of notes you had to take while watching a movie back then. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I mean, I started reviewing movies in a time when, I mean, I, there was, I was always able to look things up on the internet, but there were still a lot of press notes. And, you know, they, they would provide you with stuff. In fact, for some research that I did on another movie, uh, reviews talk about the notes that they were given, in or, including like transcripts in order to properly do that uh review what so, a hot tease josh yeah i know it's very exciting <laughs> stuff and i don't even it's even i don't i don't even think it's mentioned in in uh what we're going to talk about there but 
to your point here, yes, um, you would have to take a lot of notes, but they were provided with some info. I guess, like, if I'm distilling it, if you watch a Hitchcock movie and you don't like it, you can still see why people would call it exciting, right? But whatever the twist, the turns, the suspense, uh, some of the action pieces, right? But here, I don't, I just don't see what the excitement is. I felt a very uh, large lack of excitement throughout the entire picture. You felt that Antonio Nianui <laughs> that uh, Andrew Saris is I, talking about there. I wanted to say Antonio Nish. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think you're right. Like, I can, I can see why people would like this movie, but I definitely can't see you, it, the appeal of it from that standpoint of, wow, the plot was so exciting and thrilling and engrossing. Right. You know, it barely exists. And there is one scene, I mean, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the, the plot of this movie, which is, is very minimal and doesn't even really come in until more than halfway through the movie, is that the main character, who's a photographer, takes these pictures in a park, uh, sort of clandestinely of these two lovers, and uh, discovers later on when he develops the pictures that he has inadvertently photographed someone murdering this man that, he's, that he took a photo of. So, I mean... That sounds interesting, right? But yeah. and and the the scene or the sequence where the main character is realizing what he's captured and he's developing develops these photographs and he keeps blows them up. He blows them up exactly. He keeps doing that. But you know, at first he just is do, is, is looking at them normally and then realizes there's something there and goes back again and again. And of course, the process of how you develop it would be much less exciting now with just like pinching and zooming. Um, sure. But the process, like that's a really, is a good sequence and is suspenseful, I think, that one part of the movie. But I, I agree with you. That is, uh, and you know, it shows like someone who is very good at their profession using their technique to take them somewhere they didn't expect with it. And I, I always like that in film. Right, right. I think that is fascinating. And it, it sort of leads you to think that like, okay, we've now spent an hour just kind of getting the mood of the swinging 60s London and getting to know this sort of jerk of a character. And now we're going to really get to the meat of the story. And almost immediately, again, Antonioni undercuts that with the lack of urgency on the movie's part and on the character's part to figure out what's going on. And I think that is that is a deliberate choice to not satisfy the audience with the answers, the quote answers to the plot. If I'm not mistaken, isn't the next scene after like this discovery of him having the three way with those two models? Right. That he like would definitely be me too'd for in uh, the way he um, kind of it's a very weird, I guess, 60s sequence. But it's like these girls are like telling him to back off and no. And he just like pulls their you know clothes off and they're like, OK, sex now. And it's like, what? That's that is a different society than than we are used to, sir. Yeah, that doesn't it is it's sort of ambiguous there, whether because as you say, they're they are at first pushing him away and then they seem to be into it eventually, but it's hard to say whether they really are. Yes, it does seem uh like everyone is a willing participant eventually eventually yeah. right and you you know you wonder like uh are they really or they're just going along with it because they think he can help them become models or whatever but i mean that's not even the movie doesn't even care about any of that right it's not asking you those questions right it's just a strange detour 
like after you have this major plot point to go like, okay, now we'll do this. Right. And that is what it is where, I mean, and you could argue, I suppose that it demonstrates this character's sort of uh, priorities and the fact that he doesn't, even though he seems to be really shaken up by having caught this murder at certain points in the movie, he seems to have been emotionally affected by it. But at the same time, he doesn't care that much. Yeah, I mean, I think some would compare that scene to when in Porky's, the guy puts his <laughs> penis through the peephole and the female students or teacher just grabs it. And you're like, oh, blow up. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've never seen Porky, so I have no idea if that's a real scene or not. I'm almost sure it's a real scene, at least uh, from one of the Porky's. I don't know if it's the first one, but it's it's one of them. Seems, There's multiple seems porkies. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there are multiple porkies, but only one yeah. blow up. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I did like. Okay. So Pauline Kael in the New Yorker, and this is another great thing about reviews at this time period is that there aren't nearly as many film critics then as there are now, and they all know each other. And so many of the reviews that I find involve like these critics complaining about each other. So I would say probably seventy five percent of Pauline Kael's review is her. It, trashing the other critics. Well, that's great. We do love that catty, gossipy nonsense stuff. We yeah. do, but the, she's doing it in service of the idea that she hates this movie and thinks that everyone who loves it is being a pretentious jerk. I like that even better. I so, like her. Yeah. So she says, will blow up be taken seriously in 1968 only by the same sort of cultural diehards who are still sending out five-page single-spaced letters on their interpretation of last year at Marion Bad? No two are alike, no one interesting. It has some of the Marion Bad appeal. A friend phones for your opinion, and when you tell him you didn't much care for it, he says, you'd better see it again. I was at a swinging party the other night, and it's all anybody talked about. Was there ever a good movie that everybody was talking about? People identify with it so strongly, they get upset if you don't like it, as if you are rejecting not just the movie, but them. And in a way, they're right, because if you don't accept the peculiarly slugged consciousness of Blow Up, you are rejecting something in them. Antonioni's new mixture of suspense with vagueness and confusion seems to have a kind of numbing fascination for them that they associate with art and intellectuality, and they are responding to it as their film, and hence as a masterpiece. Antonioni, like his fashion photographer hero, is more interested in getting pretty pictures than in what they mean. But for reasons I can't quite fathom, what is taken to be shallow in his hero is taken to be profound in him. Maybe it's because of the symbols. Do pretty pictures plus symbols equal art? And she clearly thinks no. Um, and then goes on for many, many, many more paragraphs. Um, it's a very long review, but what uh, is that? What is that film she's talking about there that she's comparing it to? Oh, last year at Marion Bad, yeah, the Alain Rene film, which is you think Blow Up is pretentious, Blow Up is nothing compared to last year at Marion Bad. Um, but that is like, I mean, as she points out, not only here in her time, and it came out, I don't know exactly when, but it seems probably a couple years before this, but even I mean, is one regarded as one of the great French films of all time. And I remember seeing that film in college and hating it. Yeah. Far more so than Blow Up because mm. it is just like ennui and vague pronouncements about existence and it has no plot. And yeah. But I mean, it's been a very long time since I saw yeah, it. Yeah. I don't even know that movie. And uh, I know that there are more than one Porky's in this series. So I'm a fairly <laughs> film yeah. historian. Clearly. But um, 
she uses the word suspense. I, I mean, you know, I get it. That's, but the suspense, like you said, like he just deflates it at every possible juncture. So there really is no suspense in this film. Right. I mean, again, I think the idea is that he's adding that element to what he's done before and that any amount of suspense or any amount of like plot elements that hint at suspense are new for him. And she obviously is saying, you know, she's sort of undercutting him too by saying he's mixing it with vagueness and confusion. Um, And she obviously does not think that that's a positive. But I mean, I think to me, that's one of the frustrating things that I almost would like this movie more if there weren't a plot of any kind, or at least the murder plot didn't exist, because then he wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be frustrated. You wouldn't get the sense of, oh, wow, what's going on here? And then completely never get to find out anything about what's going on. And I realize that's the point, is that things are unknowable or mysteries don't really resolve in a satisfying way or whatever, but it just makes the movie even more frustrating to watch. In uh, some of my research on it, uh, Ronan O'Casey, who plays the gentleman who was murdered, said that in the script, there was an explanation of the murder and they just didn't film it because they went over a budget. And it seems like maybe those were scenes you should have prioritized over some of the other scenes there. Maybe. I mean, it's also, I think people don't necessarily, he's saying that, but there's no like confirmation that that's true. That's true. Um, But he may very well be right. And I think, yes, uh, another filmmaker would prioritize those things, but clearly Antonioni has different kinds of priorities just in a filmmaking sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair enough. So um, had you seen this one before, Jason? I mean, this is like, I mean, we should say as much as Pauline Kael and we are kind of crapping on it, this is considered like one of the greatest films ever. Yeah, I know. I don't like it. Um, (laughs) I hadn't seen it before. It's not my first uh, rodeo with Mr. Antonioni, but uh, I think maybe he and I, um, we just are better off at uh, separate ends of the party there. Yeah, that's fair. I, I saw this because of its reputation some i don't know exactly when 10 or more years ago probably and i remember not liking it at the time and and i think partly because i had these expectations of this is this great film and also with the plot it's known for that plot and you watch the movie and you realize the plot is so unimportant in so many ways so i mean i think coming back to it this time i knew that would be the case and I remembered not liking it and I maybe appreciated it a little more just in terms of the the way it captures London and just some of the aesthetic elements. But overall, I still didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I, I like the way he utilizes cityscapes. Um, I mean, and he does that very well in all his movies, at least the ones that I've seen, you know. But and yeah, you do get that feel for what London is. And, you know, you're just waiting for David Bowie to come on top of the pops at some point in time. But but yeah, I don't know that that's not enough to make a movie work for me. As you said, Josh, uh, very well regarded. The French syndicate of cinema critics gave it best foreign film. The National Society of Film Critics gave it best film and best director. And you mentioned the Academy nod. So we're just uh, we're just not swinging in the mod scene, I guess. No, no. And I I will say, despite appreciating some of those elements more, I still overall didn't care for it. And I haven't seen, I've only seen one other Antonioni, but I feel like I'm probably not quite on his wavelength either. Um, I I should say, I mean, there's, there's a number of other films of his that are also considered, you know, among the greatest in cinema that I'm sure I should see. But at the same time, I wouldn't expect much in terms of my own enjoyment. So Dave, had you seen this one? 
No, I hadn't. I certainly knew its reputation. And after I watched it, I, I was so determined to get on his wavelength. I watched two more of his movies in a row. And I, just like Jason, I do not which, belong watching his movies. Which two did you watch? The Passenger and uh, La Ventura. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Josh and I have both seen The Passenger. I haven't seen it in a very, very long time. Yeah. So. I, I saw it in college and I remember being like, oh, okay. So, yeah, I remember I liked it. I saw it a little more recently than that. It's been a while. I saw it when it got a, a big re-release. And I think I went into it thinking, oh, I'm not going to like this probably because I didn't like Blow Up. And I, I like The Passenger has more of a plot. Sure. I think past that that might have the most plot of any Antonioni movie. Yeah. And so I guess I, I it's been a while, but I remember finding that a bit more engaging and Jack Nicholson's performance. And I, I, I like that, but it's been a long time. But if I'm not mistaken, the reason it wasn't released when it was filmed was because Nicholson had some, some of the rights or whatever, and he did not want it released. So, well, he, he was good in it. I mean, you know, maybe he, uh, he doesn't know what's best. (laughs) He knows, uh, how to be as good as it gets. Thank you. Uh, Mm. no, he was, uh, he was good in it. And I didn't see La Ventura. I watched La Note after this okay. or before this uh, recently. And I felt the same about this as I felt about that, where it's just like so meandering and just never picks up. I just, it's just, maybe he's just not for us, Dave. Right, right. And and by the way, I agree. The Passenger was my favorite of the three, but that's not exactly saying a lot. Right. And I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I think at the time I, I went back and looked at my review that I wrote at the time and it was it was fairly positive. And there's one shot. There's like a long take. There's like the second to last shot of the passenger that I remember being just blown away by. Um, but of course, I don't remember exactly what it was. But in my review, I said it was amazing. And I remember <laughs> sitting on my couch at home watching it. And feeling that kind of ennui and it's toward the end of the movie, which is kind of long. And like literally as that shot kept going, like sitting up on my couch and being like, whoa, like it, it re-engaged me there in the movie. But um, yeah. So just picturing this at this point, you were lying down. I don't know if I was lying down, but maybe maybe I was like, you know, kind of le- le- leaning back a yeah. bit or something. And, you know, I was like, all right, this is almost over. And then it just it just really caught my attention again. Yeah, well, um, that's not the movie we're talking about today. So no, good, it, for, good for that. Josh. Right. Yeah. This one, this one, I did not have that moment. So I, but again, I will say, as I said before, the sequence, the one really good sequence in this movie where he's figuring out what's going on and blowing up the photos, I think is really like legitimately thrilling and suspenseful. Well, Josh, that is a perfect thing to talk about in our next segment when we discuss our general thoughts on blow up. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, which we don't like, I guess. No, and it's a bummer. We want to like movies, and we want to connect with the Palme d'Or winners. And for the most part, I think we have. There's a few hit and misses in there, you know. Uh, But uh, this one... Yeah, I mean, I don't, it's not too long, so I can't really use that as a thing. You know, it's just, it just never picks up. And then, you know, when you think it does, like, uh, there's a scene where he's taking the pictures and he thinks that he saw something, but he's not sure. And, you know, he goes to the restaurant to meet like his agent type guy. 
And then there's a guy who like looks in the restaurant, like, you know, who clearly is, uh, you know, making sure that he doesn't have any evidence of whatever was going on. And that guy disappears and never comes back. And Vanessa Redgrave is so concerned with getting the pictures. And then she has sex with the guy for no reason. And it's like, well, does anything mean anything? Maybe that's the point. That is the know? point, I so, think. Yeah. But, you know, it just didn't it just didn't hook me. I, I, did you, What else did you like about it? Anything beyond what we talked about? Herbie um, Hancock, the, the soundtrack? Yeah, Herbie I mean, Hancock? the soundtrack is great. Like, I feel like this movie, even though it was made in 1966 or whatever, this movie feels like a movie that would be made now to parody the 60s. Like, I kept waiting for Austin Powers to show up, you know? Um, so that stuff is great. Yeah, the Herbie Hancock soundtrack and the music uh, when we get to see the Yardbirds perform which is one of the only documents of their lineup with both Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. I mean, that's an amazing 60s thing that, of course, they didn't know at the time would be so amazing. Yeah, it's just uh, totally irrelevant to everything. But Josh, like you said, you're seeing the Yardbirds and it could be a really cool sequence that but it doesn't really have any relevance to the plot. And you're waiting for some type of relevance to the plot. And then what happens is, you know, they smash the guitar and he gets the neck of it and it's, you know, turns out to be like a valuable item because it's from the Yardbirds, but he just throws it out. And then some dude picks it up off the street and is like, eh, guitar neck, I don't want it. And I get it that that's symbolic of like, what is valuable? Is anything valuable? But it just kind of like the whole thing, just since it has no meaning throughout, like it doesn't mean anything there to me either. Right. Yeah. I think you can look at that scene and understand the symbolism, which, as you said, is the idea of what is valuable that in the context of being inside the concert with all the fans, it's incredibly valuable. And they're like attacking him to get it. But once he's out on the street with people who don't know what it is, it's just a piece of trash. You can understand that and yet also feel like who cares? Right. And why was it placed where it was placed? Because at that point, we're getting to whatever climax there is. And then it's like, ah, here's another detour, you know, and a long detour there. Yes, because they got to play like they play like a whole song almost. It's the Yardbirds, man. I mean, it's a good song. Like yeah. this, as I was saying, the, the music here is good. Their music, the Herbie Hancock music, all of it is very 60s, but is, is very good. Yes. And now if we're looking for something else positive in this film, I'll tell you what I loved was the studio uh, that the main character inhabits as a work and living space. I thought that was an amazing looking place. And I know that this uh, character is kind of based on some of those like more popular photographers of the 1960s. I think this uh, David Bailey might have been, it might have been his workspace actually, who was a real photographer. And um, Antonioni does a great job of utilizing the space, not just with the camera, but having Hemmings move about the space. So that was to me probably the most exciting element. I like when someone can take just one space and make it dynamic. Although this already is a dynamic space, he really does utilize it well. Yeah, I agree. And it, it is, I mean, it's kind of cool to think that this is actually a real person's studio because it's so weird and the layout is so off kilter and everything. You think this must be a set that they built to kind of go along with the themes of what is real and all of that. But no, it is in fact real. And so I think that is cool. And, and all of the visual elements of this, the costumes, I mean, if he's capturing the, the style of the time, that London mod scene, um, they're very vibrant. And um, I, I like that. 
and the, the colors pop, the cinematography. I don't know if this was, was this Antonioni's first color film? I'm not sure, but um, I know he made black and white films earlier in his career. So um, the colors definitely pop. And his first English language. It is his first English language film, yes. But but they, you can make a color film not in English. So mm. I don't know if this is his first color film. <laughs> well, but, um, did you learn that from last year in Marion Park? At or last year in Marion Bad, which is <laughs> yeah. which is in black and white, yeah, um, and in French. But um, no, my point is the cinematography is good, and and the costume is. I mean, even in 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 moments where you're like, why is this person here or why are they dressed that way or whatever? It still looks cool. Like, why are we, why do we have mimes? Pauline Kale, by the way, spends like three paragraphs talking about mimes, which I did not include. Well, but... yeah, we should, we should at least reference that. So the beginning and the end are kind of bookended with these like performance artists who I guess it would be closest to like a flash mob street performance style where they just go places and they're like you said dressed as mimes and they just put on i don't even want to say a show but put on some type of artistic piece in the end they're pretending to play tennis and the other uh people in the group are the spectators and it doesn't matter to them if anyone's watching it didn't seem to but they were just doing it so. right well in the opening scene they seem to be part of some kind of political protest well Maybe in the end, they're protesting Wimbledon. <laughs> Maybe. But yeah, I don't really, I don't really understand the mime thing. But uh, one of the things, and I, I don't think this is available anymore, but um, Steven Soderbergh, who has this weird sideline of re-editing old films as like a hobby, and he'll sometimes post on his website. And he did a re-edit of this film that apparently removed the mimes. And I don't know what else he removed. But uh, of course, it's 50 percent better. At yeah. least. <laughs> um, of course, it's, it's like completely unauthorized. So you can't it's not on his website anymore. Um, so I don't know exactly how it looks. But this is one of the movies that he did that with. And I think as much as maybe uh, we don't like the mimes, um, I mean, Soderbergh, when he does these edits, it's because he thinks the movies are great and he has some sort of perspective he wants to offer. So I don't think it's like, oh, this is crap and I'm going to make it better. What if uh, that was part of like his Tinder profile or something like? You know, instead of like, I'm a foodie, I like adventures, you're like, your big trait is, I re-edited old Pomme d'Or winners. <laughs> well, other ones, too, I'm trying to remember, because he's done a few. The only other one I can think of is the edit he made of Psycho, where he combined the Hitchcock and Gus Van Zandt versions. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we love Soderbergh, so. Right. And, and I, what I love about Soderbergh is that he's that much of a film nerd, that that's like what he does for fun. Right. That's what I'm saying. And I'll also add that one movie he didn't uh, recut was Porky's because it's perfect in its original form. I doubt that that's true. So, Josh, here's one problem. And we've talked about this thematically over multiple episodes, multiple seasons. The main character is a real dickhole. And it's it's very difficult to you don't have to like the protagonist, but you have to, like, have some type of rooting interest for the protagonist. And this guy's such a knob, you just want to punch him in the face the whole time, right? He is. And, and again, I feel like this is another one of the things where you get to that point where he discovers the murder and you think, oh, this is going to be kind of a growth thing yes. for him emotionally. He's going to realize that he's got himself into a very serious situation and he needs to kind of take life seriously. And that is not what happened. The whole world doesn't revolve around me, right? Which is the whole first hour. He just shows up late. He insults models. 
And then, but he's talented. So they're all put up with it, you know? And yeah, you think this is a good point where like you could learn something, you could grow, you could change, you could do something good, but uh, none of that does happen. No. I mean, and I think that like the idea of never being able to solve the murder is probably at least part of the point here that that's not how things work in real life. People don't become better. You know, they're jerks and then they're still jerks. You could become a better person. You could, but most people don't. Well, you know, I mean, today there's such a true crime boom, right? And now it's all over streamers. I think podcasts really broke through and, you know, we have all these amateur sleuths. That's what I was kind of comparing this to. Did you want, you wanted him to have a podcast? No, I'm just saying this type of mood, not that all podcasters are jerks although i know two in this room uh-huh. uh, what i'm saying is like you know this feels like that type of energy to me of like i took a photograph and now i can go do this and you know uh it kind of like the show search party right where she's just doing a quest to have some type of meaning although really the meaning is she just wants to feel something in herself that's what this whole thing felt like which was like hey oh, maybe I discovered a murder. Won't this be great for my career? Right, because what is the first thing that he does? Well, because he first doesn't realize that it's a murder. At first, he thinks he's just captured the guy with the gun and that actually his photograph, his being there, scared the guy off. And so the first thing that he does is he calls his agent and says, you'll never believe these amazing photographs. This is so awesome for my upcoming book. So yeah, he clearly sees it that way. Yeah, and this is uh, David Hemmings, uh, who was an unknown at the time, and is fine in this movie. I found it interesting that it was originally going to be Terrence Stamp, and they got and uh, Sean Connery too, right? But Connery turned it down, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Stamp was attached, and then they just fired him, um, which is not a good move. You should never fire Terrence Stamp. No, but I mean, like. Not that Terrence Stamp isn't great or that Sean Connery isn't great, but I don't know how much better this movie would have been with either of them. Right. The character is just uh, so unlikable. One thing that would have made him more likable is if he said, you're the man now, dog. Yeah. (laughs) And thank goodness we got that in there. I just watched a random Sean Connery movie yesterday. and He is great. Uh, I mean, not that that was ever in dispute, but it was a good reminder. What, what movie was it? Uh, it's a, a sci-fi movie called Outland from 1981. Mm-hmm. Recommend. Good movie. Ooh, yeah. maybe that could be your pick if we do 1981 as a season. It could be. So many previews for maybe upcoming things in this episode. It's, a, it's wild, just like the swinging 60s show. Oh, yeah. that, that it is. But yeah, I don't think you can give, you can fault David Hemmings all that much. No, I mean, you know, there's not, I said he's fine, right? I mean, just same thing with Vanessa Redgrave. Does, is that... Who's one of the most um, uh, awarded and well-recognized actors ever, right? Is there anything to her character in here? No. And as you say, she seems very inconsistent because she's so determined to get these photos. Um, You know, at first you think maybe because she's having some sort of affair and then later because obviously there's been a murder. And yet, once she comes to the studio, after a little while, she just has sex with him. Because that seems to be, he is much like Austin Powers, able to just get any woman to have sex with him, it seems Mm. like. That's like his superpower. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, he gives her a fake roll of film. So is it like, did she sleep with him to get, you know? But he gives it to her first, and then she sleeps with him. Yeah. So she could have just left. Yeah, what about the scene where he walks in on his wife having sex with another man? Is that his wife? 
I felt like it was his wife. I wasn't sure. I don't think it is. I don't think he has a wife. No, he says he has a wife. But then he says he doesn't. Man, blow up. <laughs> right? This is a scene that he gets a phone call when Vanessa Redgrave is with him. And he kind of jokes to her. He's like, oh, here, it's for you. And she picks up the phone. And she's like, who is it? And he says, it's my wife. Yeah. And she gets all huffy and says, I don't want to talk to your wife. And then he just takes the phone back and says, I'll call you later or something and hangs up. And then he says like, oh, no, I don't I don't actually have a wife. And he keeps just like messing with her. He's like, no, I don't have a wife. We just have some kids together. And then he's like, no, we don't actually have kids. Right. And so I think that woman who is she shows up in the beginning when he's kind of like all uh, frustrated with his models who won't do exactly what he tells them to do. And he's really treating them terribly. And he just walks out on them and tells them to close their eyes and just leaves them there, which is a really dick move. Yeah, I told you, he's not a good guy. No, he's not. But then he walks across, like across the street or next door or something uh, to this house where there's a woman and a man who's a painter. I think they're married. Man, it's the, it's the 60s. Everyone, I don't know. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought it was his wife. I know the scene you're talking about. And I thought, you know, he was backtracking to get back in her good graces, you know. I um, thought it was that he was maybe having an affair with her and she was married to the painter. I mean, either way, he walks in on two people just having sex and the woman notices that he is there and she's just like, shh, you know, don't don't make any noise. I'm doing sex right now. Right. You know? Or even more than that, it seems like she's like, oh, don't leave. Check this out. <laughs> it's funny that all of this is inconsequential to what the plot supposedly is. Oh, Everything yeah. is. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And this is that's another moment where He's found out, although you could you could argue that maybe he's going over there because he thinks he's going to talk to her about what he's found out, but she's busy having sex. But it's still another moment where it's like, this is what he's doing instead of trying to figure out who committed murder. Hmm. That should be the priority. Figuring out the murder. You'd think it would be, but yeah. you got to go see the Yardbirds. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're about to break up. Jimmy Page is going <laughs> to leave the band. So. so originally he wanted the Velvet Underground. Antonioni uh, and the who I believe also that's why Jeff Beck smashes his guitar right, because that's a Pete to... Townsend thing yeah um, and the other one I read there was a band called the in crowd who I've never even heard of well I guess you're not in with the in crowd mm, no no yeah. I'm not you don't go where the in crowd goes I don't wherever they are I'm I'm the opposite of that <laughs> <laughs> you're in the out crowd yeah there's no crowd it's just me anyway alone <laughs> Um, blowing up pictures and solving murders right or not not solving murders well josh i think we've taken this as far as you don't have anything else to offer here no i've tried to you know to dissect it uh, with you and um it's gotten me nowhere yeah i think trying to not that people don't i mean it's this is certainly one of the most you know heavily analyzed movies around or certainly that we've talked about but i i do think that the more you kind of try to to pick it apart, the less gratifying it is in some way, because it's really just this mood piece. And I think that's what Antonioni is going for in his other movies that have little to no plot. And the issue here is sort of expectations of something different. Yeah. I mean, we always talk about placing things in their time and context. And I think we have a we're having difficulty doing it with this one, but we can only do what we can based on when and how we viewed it. Well, right. And I think, you know, you can, you can see what the context was there from what the response was from, from critics at the time. And I think it's interesting, again, to point that out, that it wasn't just 
that it was brilliant, that it was already exactly what we're talking about here, that some people think this is brilliant and other people think this is pretentious nonsense. Right. And maybe he wants he wants that you know that's a that's a good dichotomy of reaction i mean people were talking about it obviously it got him a lot of attention and 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 its reputation has held steady for 50 plus years yeah i still think you know it's just a, a filmmaker that i just am having trouble relating to so having watched multiple pieces from him yeah and i kind of feel the same i i you know have only seen that other one and even though i like that more it was sort of an effort to to get into it and to find something that I liked about it. And I, I don't imagine I going into another Antonioni movie, I would probably feel like I don't expect to be really into this. Like but. he wants you to watch, but from like a removed standpoint almost. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what this is too, in a way if it's, if it's look at the sixties London scene, the mod scene is that he's capturing it, but he's also sort of stepped back from it and, and judging it in a certain way. So what are we rating this out of? I don't know. Five. Uh, I feel like we should rate it out of something completely irrelevant, like five, <laughs> uh, five invisibly mimed tennis balls or sure. something. How about out of porkies? <laughs> oh, five, porkies. five porkies. There might have been five porkies. <laughs> there probably was. So. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to rate it out of invisible tennis balls, Dave, because it's going to confuse the audience if I give it a low porkies rating because porkies itself gets such a high rating. Good you point. Know, Good so. point. Um, it only gets two from me. I kept trying to find reasons to, you know, because it's technically so good, bump it up. But it's I just the story and just it's such a slog to get through two yeah. invisible tennis balls. I think I gave it I think I rated it a two when I first saw it. And I'm going to give it to two and a half this time because I, I did. I think I, I was able to maybe appreciate some of those other elements a little more this time around because I wasn't so concerned about the plot being anything, but I still don't really care for it. So, and I can't, I almost can't even recommend it other than from a historical, like this movie is notable standpoint, if you want to be familiar with a, a famous, important director, but as a piece of entertainment, I just don't think there's much to it. Yeah, I agreed. So, Dave, how did you rate this? I'm going with two and a half also. And uh, yeah, it, I tried, but it is what it is. What happened here? When did you guys become so much more lenient than I than I am now? I feel like it used to be the opposite. I used to give things much uh, like a little more looser with my rating system. And now you guys are two and a half in everything that's that I'm like chewing on. And it's just, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a minor difference really. The that pandemic's we, changed us all. I guess so. <laughs> uh, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of blow up. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this episode of our season on the films of 1967. We've been talking about the Palm d'Or winner from the Cannes film festival. Michelangelo Antonioni's blow up, which we all don't like. So I feel like this is this is this is reminiscent of our episode on Paris, Texas, which was also a Palme d'Or winner that is also regarded as this brilliant film that we also didn't like, although Dave loved. But yeah, I liked it. Yeah. yeah but Jason, you and I didn't care for that. And I feel like that's another movie with all these artistic ambitions that were just didn't work for us. Well, one, Josh, I commend you on making Dave so irrelevant in the overall <laughs> opinion of things on this podcast. But yeah, we got a lot of blowback from Ooh, that one. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people told us what dumb idiots we were. So um, let's see. Maybe this time around, uh, the audience will uh, tell us what we missed again, because I just uh, 
not feeling it, bro. Yeah, maybe they'll blow up our social media to talk about our uh, complete lack of sophistication about this film. So legacy-wise, Antonioni, I mean, before this movie was already regarded as this major, important world cinema figure. As we were saying, this was his first English language film. And I mean, he remained a major figure, although he slowed down a lot after this uh, film. And I mean, he made a couple more, I think, super notable movies. The Passenger that we've talked about in 1975, I think that was, as well as Zabriskie Point, which I haven't seen, but that's another very well-known Antonioni film. Both of those also in English. And then he kept working kind of sporadically uh, later in his life. His final film is called Beyond the Clouds that came out in 1995. So as much as we've been negative on him, I feel like I should see some more of uh, Antonioni's most notable films. I agree. I should too. And I did try. And <laughs> it just, uh, I just, these two experiences were just so uh, efforted for me. It makes me not want to do it now. But I mean, you know, eventually I'm sure I'll get to another one. And uh, I just need a break. We need to we need a break right now. Yeah, that's fair. No, we 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 put in some effort here to to understand Antonioni for this episode, and now we can put him aside. Yeah, it's get like, back to him eventually later. Yeah, maybe in six months we text an Antonioni movie and be like, "Wyd, what you doing? Just checking." I in. mean, I feel like uh, booty calls are uh, something that Antonioni movies understand, <laughs> especially this one. And speaking of which, Josh, this was the first British feature to show full frontal female nudity. So talk about a legacy relating to Porky's. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It is. Well, I mean, as we're saying earlier, I mean, this was a key movie in the the crumbling of their production code, which was something that was happening at the time anyway. Yes. But this whole year is the last gasp of that. And this is a major part of it. And yeah, I agree that that is a big, you know, huge deal. And, you know, um, it inspired a number of movies, obviously the conversation, um, which I, which I, I know you love, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember just really loving that movie more even than other, like the Godfather movies, even in terms of Coppola films. I like it. I will. I want to rewatch it, but I feel like this is a, or the conversation's a better interpretation of the themes than this one is. Yeah, I agree. Um, and also even more directly blow out the Brian De Palma film with John Travolta as a sound engineer who captures a murder. Did, I believe, didn't you and I watch that in our little film club with Tony Macklin? I feel like I've seen it. The other movie I had read about, which I haven't seen, is The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Yeah, the, which is a Dario Argento film, yes. I think. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but I can see how the style and the visuals and the sort of uh, lack of interest in a coherent plot could influence Argento and, and Giallo films in general here. I can absolutely uh, see that. Yeah. Blowout. I have such vague memories of, I, I think that deserves another watch and De Palma obviously a major figure as well. Yeah. I like De Palma a lot, although, I mean, he's very uh, polarizing and I think his, his movies are either brilliant or brilliantly terrible, but always worth seeing. Um, and one thing that Blowout does have, I think, is a, a solution to this mystery, which right. this movie doesn't have. So it's, it's you know, it, it's got one up on it there. Vanessa Redgrave, we've already mentioned, all just as uh, regaled as an, an actress as there is. And that, that's kind of what a, another bummer for me in this is that, like, you know, we've all seen her, but this, like, is one of her most well-known roles. I wanted to see what it was all about. And 
it just wasn't about much. Yeah, this was an early breakout for her. And I mean, obviously, she's been in dozens and dozens and dozens of movies and still works. I think she's got two movies in post-production now still set to come out. So she's still very busy. But yeah, I don't know that this movie is necessarily making great use of her talents. One thing I got to say about her is at the time she was filming this, she was also in a play, I think, on the West End called The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And like, how amazing to be doing eight shows a week and filming a movie at the same time. That's pretty impressive. That is, although maybe speaks to that this movie wasn't asking that much of her. Yeah, and side note, the movie of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody with Maggie Smith, brilliant. Love it. Mm. Great, 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 great movie. Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, David Hemmings, as you said, he was kind of an unknown here. And this movie was a huge hit. And so it was kind of poised to make him a big star. And that didn't quite happen. Always a working actor, working producer, though. He did just fine for himself. He did. He became a TV director later in his career, did a lot of 80s action shows like The A-Team and Airwolf and stuff. Um, I will say that I recently watched or rewatched a movie that he did soon after this from 1968, uh, Jane Fonda and Barbarella, which is again, is is great. And Jane Fonda is great. It's hilariously ridiculous sci-fi psychedelic movie in which he plays a character named Dildano. <laughs> and <laughs> that's on purpose. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> great movie. And just the image, I feel like this movie, again, if you think of like the stereotype of the swinging 60s in London, this movie has like a huge indelible like part of that is an influence on pop culture in that way. Isn't it also though uh, the stereotype of uh, uh, 60s art film that really says nothing that's supposed to say a lot? That too, yes. Yeah. But um, but again, I just, I kept thinking of Austin Powers the whole time and I feel like, you know, if you're going to create some sort of parody of the 60s, this is somewhere where you would look. And I kept thinking, like I said, of the true crime explosion and reality TV and how this character would fit in perfectly as a character in that world. Except he would have to solve the crime or at least care about solving the crime. Yes, there you go. <laughs> um, and, uh, and finally, the Yardbirds broke up in 1968. But their music lives on and, you know, at least uh, Paige and Beck uh, just, they did all right for they themselves. They did all right for themselves, so. yeah. And this was, you know, it was a very short amount of time that they were both in the band. And so this is sort of like the most notable thing from that period of the band, which is weird. Hmm. So that's all I got. Anything else on the legacy here, Jason? Nope. All right. (laughs) And of course, the ultimate legacy of this film is being greeted with a shrug on awesome movie year. (laughs) Hey, man, we tried. We did. And that is Blow Up. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Yeah, you should check us out. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. My website, go for Jason. Someone should blow that up. Oh. And we're at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can find me at Josh Bell. You said that as if there was like something more to come. I, see, Josh, that's the real mystery here. <laughs> you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. 
and listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm sure somebody likes this movie in there. I'm sure. And has this movie ever come up as a puzzle piece? I feel like this is an influential movie that would show up there at some point. It has not, but that last night at Marion Bad did once. So last year, oh yeah, last year. Where yeah. for what? Uh, for uh, Capone, and that was the one that Josh Trank actually replied and said how excited he was that we said that. Wow! Man. All right, how about nice that? work? Now that makes me not want to see Capone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But what are we seeing and talking about in our next episode? Well, Josh, the musical themes are a little more, uh, let's say, thoroughly explored in this next one. It's our documentary of 1967. D.A. Pennebaker, Don't Look Back, Bob Dylan. So tune in next time for Don't Look Back. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.